Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia Baker-Whitelaw, and here is my co-host, Morgan Davies. Hello. So this week we watched the beloved 2011 sci-fi movie Attack the Block, written and directed by Joe Cornish. Starring John Boyega in his breakout role, this low-budget movie became a cult hit, praised for its funny and subversive depiction of aliens invading a London council estate. And this is a Patreon request from Asante, so thank you very much for requesting this movie, which I have seen many times, so many that I did not bother to rewatch, and Morgan watched the first time and greatly enjoyed. So you've got two thumbs up from us. (laughs) Yes, as I mentioned when we were uh, teasing this at the end of last week, this was a movie that I've just kind of like meant to watch vaguely since it came out. I know... I know that you like it and have heard positive things from like everyone I know. And I just kind of never got around to it and was horrified to discover when when I looked it up, I was like, oh God, this was 10 years ago. My dad watches this film every November 5th. That is beautiful. (laughs) One of his favorite films of all time. (laughs) Having met your father, uh, that makes a lot of sense to me and also delights me. But yeah, I mean, I wish I'd seen this at the time, but it was also really interesting to watch now because it simultaneously feels like clearly it's from 10 years ago in the sense that like John Boyega is very young, you know, not that it's that old, but it's dated incredibly well and feels very germane to conversations that are happening now, both politically, but also in terms of like where genre cinema is at the moment. It just feels very relevant. So that was super, super interesting. But why don't we start with a bit of background for the filmmaker Joe Cornish, who I think you probably have better context for because he came up sort of with the Edgar Wright group of people who are not people I have a ton of context for, actually. He kind of started out in this comedy duo called Adam and Joe, who I'm like not super familiar with, but they were enough of a presence that I'm aware of them. And this was actually his first movie, which I kind of hadn't really considered because I'd not really thought about this film in a while. (laughs) And it's an incredible first movie. He was already embedded in... British kind of film culture. He co-wrote the Tintin movie in 2011, Not Good, with uh, Stephen Moffat. Yeah, and as Morgan said, he's also, he's pals with Edgar Wright, uh, Simon Pegg, and Nick Frost, who made three movies that are known as the Cornetto trilogy, which are kind of genre savvy, but not obnoxiously so kind of combinations of sci-fi, horror, and comedy. And um, that's kind of where Edgar Wright got really big as a director, a fantastic director, um, and then kind of went on to not make Ant-Man somewhat infamously in Hollywood. (laughs) But Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz are definitely the two best films that they made together that um, Joe Cornish had like small cameo roles in. And they're kind of in the same zone this film is more traditional blockbustery, whereas Hot Fuzz is kind of one of those comedies where it's like a rat-a-tat really fast, loads of jokes, like constant visual humour, incredibly high density of information in those movies. But yeah, that's kind of the place from which he was emerging. And for this film, it's like it's quite obvious that it's influenced by films like Spielberg. There's an interview with Den of Geek that he did at the time that was quite interesting. It's like he's kind of talking from the perspective of like kind of geek culture 10 years ago before Marvel fully took everything over. He says, E.T. is kind of like a Ken Loach movie or a Mike Lee film uh, fused with a James Cameron film or something. Those American movies set in suburbia where fantastic things happen. Uh, So totally central to the idea was this 
combination of urban realism and fantasy, which is really interesting because kind of in the intervening 10 years, we've seen so much kind of sci-fi and fantasy pop culture that is directly riffing off those same things, but in a purely nostalgic way. So like the kind of the Stranger Things wave, where there's loads of movies and TV shows that in some way are kind of taking that idea of suburban kind of 1980s adventure stories but they're not rooted in anything that feels authentic anymore whereas this movie takes that idea and puts it in a modern setting that is like more authentic but yeah so like the basis of this story is like really simple aliens invade and the place that they invade is a south london council estate and it takes place in a tower block and the film was so low budget that they could not afford to shoot the tower block from above so it's just kind of like an amalgam of different places they filmed in london but um it obviously is not like the first film to do this. The thing that, that I was thinking of kind of before this film would obviously be the beginning of the new Doctor Who reboot in 2005, which had like a working class protagonist in the form of Rose Tyler. And that was really kind of based off a council estate. But for the most part in British pop culture, we have so many gritty and hard-hitting dramas that are about poor people <laughs> and not much mainstream pop culture in the way that I think you do slightly see more of in America. Um, and this kind of takes that American blockbuster concept and just makes it extremely recognisably British. Yeah, I think the sort of melding of those two forms is a lot of what makes this movie so interesting and successful. And a lot of what feels so novel about it now in particular. I mean, obviously it was a novelty on some level at the time as well, but particularly in the wake of Marvel just like consuming all mainstream culture is the degree to which it feels so specifically rooted in an environment, both physically, like you have a real sense of the building and the direct surrounding area around the tower block where this is happening. And also obviously like the cultural and socioeconomic environment that these characters are living in. It's very particular about that. And the big blockbusters that get made now, most of which are superhero movies, but even the few big blockbusters that aren't feel so disconnected from any kind of, sociopolitical reality or just like physical reality at all because they're so green screened that they kind of exist in this like vague nebulous just like imaginary sort of space and this movie is obviously intended to be very entertaining in a mainstream way but it does that through the lens of this, again, very, like, specifically located story. And to me, that was just so satisfying because I was like, oh, right, obviously this is a fantasy. And it's, again, sort of, like, constructed in a traditional manner narratively. But it does feel like these are real people and this is, like, an actual story that's happening to them as opposed to just, like, nonsense with those stakes, right? And that just, you just don't see that. Yeah anymore almost at all and also all of the characters have really strong personalities while also being comedic which is also something you see in films like hot fuzz although they're kind of more exaggerated and it's just got it's got such a good cast and i think also one of the things that really works about it is like obviously 
people talk a lot about kind of the social commentary element of this and it kind of arrives at a point where in the late 2000s there was a lot of moral panic in the media about what were at that point referred to as hoodies, a word which I have not heard or thought of in many years. But basically it was the youths, the urban youths who are wearing hoodies and it was kind of slightly differentiated from chavs who would be like specifically white like chavs are always white whereas hoodies it was kind of implied are probably black but not necessarily and it's anyone who's like a working class boy who people find threatening because they're like wandering around in a group somewhere (laughs) i'm sure everyone no matter where you're from are familiar with this type of classist concern about like petty crime and young people being annoying but this film kind of the it starts off with this scene where a young white woman is mugged by like a group of teens and they are definitely introduced in this threatening way but then kind of as the story moves on you realize that they are like just teens and also they become the protagonists of the story and they all have to team up because you know they all live in the same council estate and they're all being attacked but they had like really fun ideas with like what types of people are living in the estate because you obviously have these teenagers who are just like normal teenagers who are living in a block of flats. The second build character is Jodie Whittaker who plays this nurse that you see at the start of the film and Jodie Whittaker is now Doctor Who. She is a tremendously likeable actress. She's just absolutely lovely and she's just like another like normal person but then you also have like this one really posh guy who's there who's the annoying like drug dealer (laughs) who's played by Luke Treadaway which is another piece of great casting. (laughs) I don't believe he actually lives there. Oh, he just pops in he to is, deal some drugs. Yeah. Yes. He is the tourist. Um, <laughs> which is definitely the, like, specific, you know, valence to his character, yes. which makes him funny and adds, like, again, like, real context that feels specifically yeah. observed. He's there to, to the pick stuff dynamic. up from Nick Cross, who has the, uh, he has the cameo role as, like, the real drug dealer. <laughs> yes. And so Luke Treadaway is, happens to be in... Uh, Nick Frost's apartment with all the kids and is like trying to speak to them <laughs> with like their slang and they're all just like oh no <laughs> this is so <laughs> embarrassing and again the like nuances of how all of those interactions play out are so carefully observed in a way that is just like very funny I think the movie in general is very funny while also obviously having this sort of like action movie elements throughout. Luke Treadaway is probably the most just like straightforward comic relief character. Like he doesn't have any pathos. He's just a loser. (laughs) There's nothing about him that you're like. But I think in general, the setup at the beginning with the mugging is just like incredibly smartly handled because they mug her with like a knife. And it is genuinely, it would be scary if that happened to you, right? And like, you understand why she's upset about it. But as you say, you're not supposed to think of these teenagers as genuinely like bad or dangerous people, of course. And her mistake, or like the thing that she does that is sort of a problem, isn't that she's upset about the mugging, which is totally understandable. It's that she then calls the cops to deal with it, which I don't think the movie is suggesting is like, again, or like, like she's an evil person. It's that like, she's been trained by society to think that that's what you're supposed to do. But then like, that is also (laughs) doesn't work. Right. And when she and the boys then are having these interactions throughout the movie, you can tell that part of her reaction to them is that like, she's a white woman and is kind of like uncomfortable about the whole thing. But they also are this like group of adolescent boys 
who have this kind of tone of like macho jocularity that is quite funny but also a little bit like okay guys like calm down and eventually they kind of get to a point where they like meet in the middle but the writing is just again really smart where like you kind of understand both sides of the issue and neither of them is acting in like a 100% morally perfect manner and again they just kind of eventually get to the point where they kind of understand the situation aren't pissed off anymore so the kind of the background of this is that Joe Cornish was mugged about 10 years before this film happened so that kind of played into part of his inspiration for making the film although obviously he like is a lifelong genre fan so it's predominantly kind of a sci-fi adventure film also this film was really praised for how well it handles the slang and how kind of authentic it feels which is also part of why John Boyega took the role because obviously he was not like a known actor at this point this was definitely his breakout but I read an interview with him that kind of made it seem like he'd heard about the script, he knew that it was the kind of role he'd go for, but he didn't necessarily trust, even at the age of 18 or whatever, when he was auditioning, he didn't necessarily trust that it'd be good. And then he read the script and he was like, wow, this is incredible. He like described it as like 50 Cent combined with Spielberg. And what had happened is that Joe Cornish spent several years interviewing working class London teenagers in youth groups to kind of understand their speech patterns and like record their speech patterns and there was a lot of stuff that was said by real teenagers that was just quoted directly into the script and I kind of have mixed feelings about this right because it's like he did a clearly extremely effective research the end product is incredible he has like spoken about this a lot in interviews how he did his research but I'm also kind of like they sort of did the work for you a little bit like I kind of feel like you know, 10 years later, maybe it'd be like, oh, you would pay a consultant, like you would pay the teenagers, but like, rather than essentially like stealing what they've said, but also that is a tried and true method of how people learn to write dialogue. But yeah, that is kind of why it's so real. And also kind of the young performers who in this, most of whom like didn't really break out in the same way as John Boyega. Some of them did. There's an actor named Franz Drame who plays one of the teens and he is now like in big kind of superhero shows in America. But like they also would have had a handle on the correct way to talk. Yeah, I mean, I feel like it's a real reflection of you do the work of like learning about a particular group of people and you can make good art as a result, right? As opposed to people who just sort of stumble their way into writing something about a kind of person who doesn't share their identity, right? And then it's like, oh, this is not good and you don't know what you're talking about. Just like philosophically, I really believe that anyone could make art about anything. It's just that if you don't do your work, it can be very bad and stupid and, I mean, and make you Joe look Cornish like an idiot, is right? pretty posh. And you all know how annoyed I am by the constant nepotism in the British film industry. And I mean, he's not like the parent of two filmmakers or anything, but he went to like the fucking Westminster School, which is basically Hogwarts. <laughs> but he did end up making this film, which is like actually insightful and thoughtful and really holds up. And in terms of the slang, also, Morgan and I were kind of talking about this before we recorded, but like, there's a bunch of coverage in American media that compares the film to Clockwork Orange because of the way people are talking. And it's like, it's just like British, it's like literally, you hear people talk like this all the time. Like, especially 10 years ago, some of the slang has like moved on, but it was like, these are not like obscure words. And it's also, have you ever heard of the concept of slang? But also, Joe Cornish did kind of consider this beforehand because there was even though it was a very small film, obviously they wanted it to be distributed in the US. So like in one of the interviews I read, he kind of said they used a limited vocabulary of 10 to 15 words, which they used repeatedly. So the audience kind of gets used to them. And he sort of compared it to the way that genre audiences are completely willing to like accept Klingon or Elvish. So like, why not street slang? 
I thought that element was handled in a really intelligent way because on the one hand, it doesn't feel like it's particularly pandering to an American or otherwise international audience, right? Like the movie feels so specifically English, but it also isn't like, it is comprehensible (laughs) to like me. I feel like if my mother watched this, she would just be like, I don't know what's happening. But um, it again, like threads the needle in a very smart way in terms of like not losing too much of the specific texture of the environment that the movie is trying to depict, but also having that understanding that like a lot of people slash most people who are eventually going to see this movie are not going to be from that environment, right? So you want to kind of make it for everybody and it feels really well balanced in that way. I mean, I was definitely thinking of it last year when I reviewed this big budget Netflix movie um, it's one of those films that stars a bunch of famous people and cost a lot of money, but my guess is that, Morgan, you may not even know that it existed, but it was called Project Power, and it stars Jamie Foxx and Joseph Gordon-Levitt, and it was Dominique Fishback's first really big movie role. She's great in it, even though the film is not very good, but it's kind of a superhero film. It has black protagonists, it's about law enforcement and drug dealers, and it's set in, like, terror blocks and has loads of, you know, it basically is, like, it could easily have been the superhero equivalent of, like, an American Attack the Block, but it is li- it's literally, like, so clue and tone deaf and it's also like you know it's also written and directed by white people but it's like they have not done any of the research or the work to make any part of this land I was just like cringing all the way through yeah well in some of the interviews I read with Cornish and John Boyega it was clear also how much he was allowing the young actors who play the kids yeah to like share their opinions and like if the language didn't sound right to them he'd be like yeah well we should change it then (laughs) which is a really smart attitude and approach to have to this because obviously as the director and especially because he wrote it also like you have your vision for how you want the movie to be but part of being a successful artist, I think, is having the humility to understand when you do not actually know everything. And that particular thing seems like such an obvious area where you would be like, yeah, I'm like 40 and I'm like a white guy. Like, clearly, I don't know how all the like kids are talking today. Why don't I let these teenagers take the lead on that? But there are a lot of directors who would not have that approach. Yeah, like once every five to ten years, a film like Eighth Grade, which incidentally I've not seen, but a film like Eighth Grade will show up and people will be like, wow, someone actually spoke to some teenagers and the rest of the time it's like generic (laughs) slop. (laughs) I mean, I think that's a great comparison, even though you have not seen it. Obviously, completely different movie in like every respect, but it does have some of the similar qualities of like feeling particularly reflective of like the experience of young people at that particular time. And I think I'm always really interested in books and movies about teenagers, how adults who are making that art like navigate that. Because obviously we all remember being teenagers and some of the emotional things that we go through at that age don't really change and you can draw on the things that you remember. But the specifics of like what's going on culturally change so much. And like teenagers are always on the cutting edge of that kind of thing that it can be very hard to accurately reflect that if you're not living it. And again, this movie is sort of broad enough because of the blockbustery 
tone that it's not like a YA novel, but it still has enough of that like particular granular feeling. Like there are scenes, there are a couple scenes where the boys wind up like hanging out with this group of girls who also live in the block and they're not in the movie very much, but they just feel so completely correct to me. And it's not like I'm hanging out with girls for that demographic, right? Like I'm looking at this from an outsider as an outsider, but like watching it, I was like, Oh, this feels right. Like, and I feel like that kind of like when a movie really succeeds at getting those like specifics, correct. Even if you don't actually know anything about what's being depicted, that, that kind of feeling of authenticity kind of like comes off of the movie in some way. And you could be like, Oh yeah, this feels right to me. I enjoyed it a lot on that level. And I mean, I love some entertaining teens. The the white boy <laughs> has a thing where he's like basically like hitting on Jodie Whittaker the whole time. Yeah, this is like a like, thirteen year old or something. <laughs> yes, and I was just like, oh, that is so like uh, yes, the, I completely recognize that kind of behavior from like a thirteen or fourteen year old boy who like obviously he's not serious, but it's like that's how they think that they are like oh that's how I'm gonna behave with this like grown-up Yeah, they've all lady. got their rituals. <laughs> um, do you want to go into a bit more depth about the plot after that kind of initial mugging? Yes. So yeah, we haven't actually mentioned the like aliens, which are who are, you know, done very well in this movie. So basically the mugging happens like immediately thereafter this like alien falls out of the sky onto Luke Treadaway's car, incidentally, although we don't find out that it's his car until later. And then more of these aliens start sort of falling down out of the sky a bit later. And another thing I think is so smart about this movie is that the first one falls, like, falls down. And the reaction that the boys have is not to be like, what the fuck is that? I am getting out of here. They're like, oh yeah, let's kill it. run directly at this thing which is stupid behavior but completely makes sense for a bunch of like 15 year old boys right because they're dummies so so they wind up killing this thing and then they like drag it back with them to Nick Frost's apartment again because instead of being like maybe we should leave this bizarre like freak thing that we found in the street out here they're like who do we consider an authority figure that can give us money and or fame for finding a monster in the yard (laughs) the drug dealer so that creature kind of looks more like a an alien that we've seen in movies before it's kind of gray and slimy and tactile in a kind of familiar way and then these other creatures start sort of landing and chasing after people that are designed in a very distinctive and different way. They're like black kind of big dog type creatures, but they're not dogs and have these big mouths with a bunch of teeth that kind of glow this like blue. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a famously color. excellent character design because like the aliens are yeah. not visibly sentient they are monsters and like the whole impact of them is just that they look really cool and quite scary but not like terrifying and i read this interview with joe cornish where he said that you know he he was a cartoonist like when he was younger he likes to draw cartoons and he was thinking about it in a two-dimensional manner which completely makes sense because the whole concept is them of them is that although obviously there's quite a lot of night shots in this because you know it's a nighttime adventure movie the screen in any film is rarely completely black but 
the monster itself here, they are completely black. They're like, you know, the famous Vanta black paint that absorbs all light. So you don't need much texture because you've just got this shocking patch of black and then you've got the glowing teeth. So you've got the mouth and it's just this really cool piece of iconography that works in a really fun and effective way. And they did it primarily through practical effects rather than CGI, which is kind of famously one of the excellent choices they made for this film. (laughs) Well, I was thinking watching it, how effective those aliens are. And it's kind of like splitting the difference between showing and not showing the aliens or the monsters, right? Which is the dilemma that a lot of movies of this general type have, which is that as soon as you show the alien or the monster, it becomes less scary because the threat of the unknown is always more frightening than a concrete object. Like whatever we conjure in our minds is is more scary than like, a, you know, a CGI or a physical thing. Obviously, there are some exceptions, like the alien. An alien, very frightening. But it's just really, really hard to do. And I think in this case, the fact that they are a physical presence, like, that's clearly very important for the movie. Like, the plot of the film relies on them having to deal with these things in a practical way that requires them to be on screen. But... They're so kind of undefined that that leaves enough space for you to still have that feeling of like, this is kind of an unknown thing, which I think is really smart. And (laughs) I read an interview where he was like, yeah, actually where I got the idea for the like really black thing was from Spinal Tap (laughs) for their album where they have the really black cover on the album and they say it's blacker than black. Um, which in Spinal Tap, they realize they can't sign the album because black Sharpie on a black album doesn't work. But I found that very amusing and was like, yes, clearly this man's brain is just very open to like lots of influences. They're all being synthesized and it's all kind of Well, like there was, <laughs> there was this like story he told about like when they were promoting the film at South by Southwest, which is kind of where it broke out. Obviously, at that point, this film was tiny and it was massively overshadowed by this now forgotten film called Paul by uh, Simon Pegg and Nick Frost, which is like, nobody watches that film anymore. Um, but he said that like they were like, he asked him for his influences and he just reeled off like 40 different movies. <laughs> and they were like, we weren't <laughs> expecting you to say that because he was just like panicking. <laughs> I mean, you were saying at the beginning how that you didn't realize this was a first movie and I looked it up after the fact and similarly was like, how did he do this? Like, I don't... What? And he said in interviews, like, he really wanted to make a movie that was kind of like a John Carpenter movie and had these sort of big blockbuster elements, which obviously is challenging for a first-time director. And they had a pretty low budget. And he was, you know, it was produced by Edgar Wright's production company, which I'm sure helped a lot. But it's still, like, it's just very impressive to me to have this level of confidence in your vision as a first time person because it feels like he really knows what he wants to do and then he did it and again the like balance of tones which we keep mentioning that could go so wrong and even if it wouldn't like ruin the movie I feel like it could easily kind of just like tilt in one direction or the other and feel either like too blockbustery or too kind of like I'm making a movie 
that's set in the inner city, right? And it just doesn't really do that. And then also just like on a technical level, like he shoots all the action and stuff, including these, you know, monsters really, really well, which is very impressive. He's only made one movie since. Yeah, it's kind of surprising. Like he he co-wrote, like there was um, the Ant-Man movie that Edgar Wright was originally going to direct. And then Marvel was like, this is too interesting. So they like, basically they all departed due to creative differences and made a much yeah. less interesting film. It's how I personally interpret that. Um, but yeah, the, the the only other film he made was actually 2019. It's like another kind of kids movie, basically. It's an adventure film called The Kid Who Would Be King, which is a sort of um, King Arthur riff. And it got like relatively positive reviews, but it didn't make a great deal of impact and it didn't do particularly well at the box office. And it is kind of surprising that Joe Cornish has not made more and indeed better films. <laughs> yeah, I remember hearing good things about that movie. It did. It made no impact in America whatsoever. Yeah. And in retrospect, I'm like, oh, I bet it actually is good because oh, this guy made it. But it's peculiar that he hasn't been doing more. It's possible he's been doing like script doctoring and stuff that we, you know, do not have access to the information about that. But um, I feel like if I had watched this movie and I were a big studio, I would be like, please make a film for us. But maybe after the Ant-Man fiasco, he was like, no, thank you. Um, I think we've sort of discussed everything we can discuss without spoiling the movie. So if you want to watch the film and haven't watched it yet and don't want to be spoiled, you should stop the podcast now. Although really, it's not like a big twist. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, yes. I thought the end of this movie was just like completely amazing. I was really enjoying it the whole time. I thought it was really good. And then the last 10 minutes or so really elevated it to another level for me. And again, in terms of what we were just saying about Joe Cornish directing this thing with such confidence... In terms of the directing and the writing, like that ending is so self-assured and kind of bold in a way that I would not necessarily anticipate from someone making their first movie, although obviously he'd had other screenwriting experience. Do you want to sort of lay out what happens in that last little chunk? So like emotionally, there is a point, there's like a turning point for John Boyega's character who is clearly kind of the co-protagonist of the film, but he doesn't have a great deal of dialogue, which I will talk about in a minute. But the film kind of presents him sort of as the leader of the gang because he's like got more authority, but he's kind of, it's kind of implied that he's older and he is like physically bigger than most of the other boys. And then like we find out part of the way through the film, or rather Jodie Whittaker's character finds out that actually he is pretty young. He's living alone. He's sleeping in like a Spider-Man bed and it's quite sad. And you realise that he is basically, as is often the case, a lot of his kind of macho leadership stuff is posturing, but also he is like a really good person who turns out to be the hero at the end of the film. And they kind of construct this plan where he will like run away while carrying the, like the corpse of this one alien they found earlier who they figured out it's sort of either the male or the female i don't remember but all of the other aliens it's the female is the female so he, he he has like the female corpse and then all of like the male aliens will like chase after him and that kind of allows all of them to team up and like set fire to part of the block and kill off all the aliens but then that kind of ends in a finale where all of these teenagers are then arrested and jodie whittaker has to tell the police these hoodies aren't dangerous after all. And it's like, okay, yeah, they, they would get arrested. <laughs> well, and she tells the police that, but you don't see them being released. No. But everyone who's been like gathered outside is like chanting John Boyega's character's name. His name is Moses. And 
he like looks up and smiles at the other kid who's in the van. <laughs> like all the other kids have like died by this point. It's pretty dark. And it just like cuts to black. And I just thought that the combination of the scene where like she goes down into his flat and sees that he's basically living alone. He lives with his uncle, but he says like his uncle's not there most of the time. And that moment I felt like on the page could have been kind of thin or like it's kind of in a way a hokey reveal and on some level, but it just felt so well executed to me in the movie and reflects how strong the production design is. I think throughout the film, like all of the different flats feel very specific to the people who live in them. And in this case, it didn't feel over the top squalid. It just felt enough that you're like, oh no. And specifically the sight of his bed with the Spider-Man comforter, for whatever reason, just like, I was watching this really late last night and I was just like so sad. I was just like, oh no. like he's just a kid. (laughs) I know. And then that immediately sort of segues into his like heroic dash through all the aliens with the the one on his back, which is shot incredibly well. And then you immediately get the stuff with the cops after. And it kind of gives you an emotional catharsis, but it doesn't allow you to feel that good because you don't really know what's going to happen to the kids. I mean, you kind of have a good idea. It's not great. But it just felt like the movie was doing something so much more kind of challenging and bold than I had expected. And it wasn't like there weren't like social ideas throughout the film. Like clearly it's saying something about the political situation and like the police throughout. But we got to the end and I was like, oh no, the whole thing is an allegory for the police. Like I understand now. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's like a really common theme in young adult adventure movies and children's adventure movies that there's always kind of an adversarial relationship with adults and authority figures because of course and often there is like some teacher figure who is getting in the way of the adventure or something along those lines but with this film it's a lot more explicitly about the police as Morgan said and it's also kind of explicitly about the idea that like everyone in the terror block and the, the feeling of like class and racial unity it's like everyone has to work together to save the day at the end of the film And someone who's probably not going to get any recognition from the authorities is the person who like fully saves the day. And that is kind of the finale of the movie. And it just feels really hard hitting without being really preachy because like that is an element that is kind of subtextual, even though it is like the core, the core of the film. (laughs) And it just was extremely relevant in 2011 and also extremely relevant now. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, watching it, I was like, this feels like it came out today with all of the current discourse about policing. Not that all the discussion about policing is started this year and no one has ever talked about it before, but the movie just felt extremely, extremely germane. Yeah, and I think that it is also kind of interesting to see like the different ways that films are kind of discussed in like the public sphere. Because if this film came out now, there would be people like screaming from the rooftops about how political it is and especially the role of the police. And I don't think that was a major element 
in the original marketing push and discussion around the film. Like, obviously people understood that was part of the story, but because the climate kind of changes the way that people discuss things, it wasn't really seen as particularly edgy. And people were just like, oh, it's cool that you've done this movie which portrays urban black teenagers in a positive light. And kind of Joe Cornish also mentioned in one of his interviews that part of the reason this film even got made at all was because the Kid Adulthood franchise had been so successful. I've actually not seen any of those movies, but um, they were really big films in the UK, directed, um, I think, co-written and starring Noel Clark, who was recently outed as a tremendous sex pest, unfortunately. I saw, I think, the first one, which I think is Kid Adulthood, for a job when I was in college, and I remember not liking it at all, thinking that it was very sexist, so... There were perhaps some signs, uh, but yes, it was obviously like a massive phenomenon over there. No, I mean, they're very British. And also kind of, as we've said, I think in our episode where we kind of discussed films last year, like Mangrove, the British film industry is much more racist than the American film industry. So it's pretty rare to see films that have black protagonists. So this was rare at that point. I mean, it was really interesting to read interviews with John Boyega about this and I'll put a link to this in the show notes there's a kind of profile with him in the New York Times back in 2011 so he would have been 19 he'd made this film I guess when he was 18 and it's just interesting to see how he is exactly the same person then as he is now because you know when you follow particular actors like obviously there are parts of their journey and their career that they choose to share with the public as part of their own image construction. But also you often get the picture that people are not necessarily always in control of that, right? Like a lot of the time it's, you know, luck or nepotism or whatever. And like, they are not really shaping what their image is until they're older. And with John Boyega, you can read this thing with him like at age 19 and his personality is really clear. Like all kind of all the stories about his past, like his confidence, his decisions about what types of role he does and doesn't want to do. And... Also, like, his skill as an actor, because this movie made, like, a massive impact. People loved him. Like, J.J. Abrams saw this film and literally told him, I'll give you a role at some point, although that didn't directly lead into Star Wars. But, like, you know, there's a quote from him in this interview saying that because he realised that he didn't have much dialogue in this film, he started watching The Wire so he could watch these characters who are, like, drug dealers and don't talk very much. And he said, I knew I wouldn't have a lot of dialogue, so it means telling the story through your eyes all the time, which is exactly what he does. It's a very conscious performance. And a lot of the time when people are kind of writing about younger actors, they try and frame it in a way that makes it seem like, oh, it's just instinctive. Like, this person's breakout role is just, like, their natural, authentic self coming through. And it's like, no, he is making it clear that this is a performance that he's, like, researched and done, you know? And he kind of also talks about, like, his background in London and how he doesn't want to be separated from that, even though he is trying very hard to have, like, a big career. And all of that just comes through very clearly when he's 19 and comes through very clearly now when he's, like, 30 in his interviews now. And I'm just like, yeah. Really, really interesting to read from him. (laughs) Yeah, I find him so fascinating as just like a public figure. I'm really looking forward to him being in non-Star Wars films. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Because those were not a great vehicle for him, as we have discussed. I think this is the best performance I have seen him give. Not that I think he's been like bad in other stuff at all, but like the Star Wars movies... I don't think her show off his talents particularly. And the small axe movie he was in was not one of the ones that I particularly liked. He was fine in it, but I just didn't love that movie. But um, he's obviously someone who is thinking about this stuff so much 
and that is not always the case with actors and will only serve him well obviously in terms of like having a long career because he's clearly being deliberate about it which is going to make the you know next 10 20 years i think really fascinating he's he's fantastic in this movie and um and the movie itself is just is just great i was kind of surprised like maybe i just missed articles comparing these two films at the time because i hadn't seen this movie so i i wasn't thinking about it as much but I feel like there's a lot of stuff happening in this that you compare to Get Out in a really interesting I've not way. seen any comparisons there. Yeah. And obviously Get Out is presenting itself in a more explicitly like this is a commentary way, right? But I feel like this sort of like use of genre to get across a sort of political point that this is doing something kind of similar in a way that I think would be pretty interesting to like double bill them, which I was not necessarily expecting when I turned on this film. So, uh, yeah, I totally loved it. And um, I mean, also, I guess, like, in terms of the discussion around this in the UK, reading a few of these interviews and stuff, I did notice that some of them are quite reticent to discuss the fact that John Boyig is black. because it was it's britain so they're just like they're talking they're trying to talk about it like more on like class terms or be like oh hoodies and i'm like hoodies isn't like a like that's not a thing <laughs> oh in that sense times have indeed changed <laughs> right oh god well uh, we highly recommend this movie obviously uh if you haven't seen it really super both like really enjoyable and moving i found and which short is great Combination. Under 90 yeah, minutes, hour to my half. astonishment. Yeah. Yep. Oh, you, you you love to see that. Really. Just superb. So um, thank you so much again to Asante for sponsoring this episode. And uh, next week, we will be watching Clute, the Alan Pacula film for which Jane Fonda won her first Oscar, I believe. Uh, which I love. I saw it last year for the first time. It is so fantastic. It's from the early 70s, and she uh, stars as a sex worker in New York, and also stars Donald Sutherland. It's one of Pacula's paranoia trilogy of films, uh, also including All the President's Men and The Parallax View, and it is just a superb, superb, superb movie. I so. look forward to seeing it because I've seen those two other movies, but um, my primary experience of Jane Fonda is Barbarella, so... <laughs> You know, <laughs> yeah, this is different. Um, I think I don't think I'd ever seen her in a film before I watched this. I've I've seen a few in. The I mean, I've year, seen her in a lot of like ridiculous stuff. <laughs> watching this, I was like, oh, I understand why she's like considered a great actor now. And also, sometimes people win Oscars for the correct things, which was the case here. So I'm really looking forward to talking about that one. So that will be next week. You can support us on. Patreon at patreon.com slash overinvestedpodcast. If you would like to sponsor an episode where you tell us what to watch, that is the place to do it. Gavia, where can our listeners find you and your work online? You can find me on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor, and you can find me on YouTube at Behind the Seams, where I just released an episode about the history of Dracula's cape. Excellent. You can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at ML Davies. The podcast is on Twitter at overinvestedpod on Tumblr at Overinvested Podcast, and our website is overinvestedpodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.